0: That's what I thought. So anyway, they're working on both sides, and I was going home the other day, and inadvertently I forgot the day. I have watched, you know, the signs, and I read, you know, what they're saying, and I knew that the day was coming that they are going to block Webb. On the east side, you can't go to the left or through the west, in a le- a north or south, I'm sorry, as you're going east, you can't turn. Or if you're coming west, you can't turn on Webb. You just cannot. Don't try. I saw a guy try and got mad at the officer, and they were having a debate, and the officer was not going to let him go by. No matter how much, he probably, oh, man, the officer said, no no. And he goes, no, 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 and he said, no, and so they were having this discussion. Anyway, when I went out by there the other day, I happened to notice that uh, people were still trying to turn. Obviously, they don't read the signs. The day came on them unexpected like it did me, and I would not have gone that way, and I'm avoiding that way now ever since. Amen? I'm taking whatever street other than that street. So, Anyway, I'm going east, and I get caught in the first day that they're blocking Webb, and the traffic is piling up. And it's, you know, it's not like Houston or Dallas or other places. Minutes here seem like hours. In other places, hours are hours, but our minutes seem like hours. And, and uh, we, we think that there's congestion here, but there's not really. And so I was there for a few minutes. And I happened to notice while I was there, I had time to sort of peruse and investigate the. The lack of progress, or the progress, whatever you want to say that's going on, because they say it's going to take three to 20 years to fix the east side and the west side. Just kidding. But anyway, so they're working on it right now, and I noticed that there were five guys in a little circle having a conversation and one guy working. One guy. No wonder it's going to take decades for this thing to be finished. One guy working. I'm not sure what they were talking about. I hoped it was about the project and some of the complications and things that were needed. Or maybe they were talking about politics. I don't know. Or what they were going to have for lunch. But they, they were there and they were discussing. One guy was working. And it suddenly dawned on me. That's exactly like the church. Today's consumer-driven churches cater to the preferences and the comforts of people rather than challenging them to commitment and to service. We have become a modern church that is seeing people more as customers than they are disciples. And if we don't do what our customers expect, they'll go somewhere else where another church will do what they expect and what they want, and they will grow numerically. And so we have a tendency in this rub, I'm just going to tell you as a pastoral staff that we have here, versus customers, versus disciples, and timing, and all those kinds of things. But we've given up to the fact that you're not a customer, you're a disciple. And because you're a disciple, you're expected then, as a disciple, to follow Christ, And as we have been discussing since Easter, that Christ one day is going to come, the trumpet of God is going to blow, the dead in Christ will rise, and those of us who remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds, and we will be forever with the Lord. And we will stand before the Lord on accountability day and give an account of our lives before him. How do we live our lives? And we think that accountability day is only for those who are unsaved. But there's an accountability also for those of us who are saved, those of us who are disciples, those of us who are Christ followers. We will stand before the Lord and give an account. Like we did last week, we talked about the three guys. One received five talents, one, two, and one, one. And the master came unexpectedly, caught them unguarded, unprepared, really. And the five had made five, and he now had ten. The two had made two more, and he had four. And the one had hit it, you remember, because he didn't put it to work. In other words, he chose not to work. And unfortunately, there are more today, disciples, who choose to see Christianity more as a consumer product rather than a discipleship life that is called to service, to sacrifice, and to work. And I'm reminded about the old song, We'll work till Jesus comes, we'll work. How many know that song? You're you're showing your age, guys, okay? But, But work is not a nasty word. And as disciples, when Christ returns, he's going to want to find us busy at work. Jesus so far, in Matthew 24 and 25, as we have discussed, is on his way to Bethany after a long day working in Jerusalem, preaching and proclaiming the good news. And we talked about him sitting in the Mount of Olives, looking over Jerusalem and seeing the temple. Talks about the reality of his return When he will set up his kingdom And we have been discussing and We will next week We'll finish chapter 25 About the judgment But in the meantime Between now and the judgment What do we do? It's called work W-O-R-K Work If you're not a disciple of Jesus This is not for you I'm sorry we're doing family business today And I was taught in my home when guests are there You wait till they leave before you do family business (laughs) And we're going to ask you to sit through this family business It won't get that ugly But we are going to talk about family business Because we're talking to disciples Those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Christ We are now his disciples We are to emulate his lifestyle And we are to follow his words And in Matthew 9 He is calling his disciples To work And we need to get about the father's business Because one of these days The trumpet of God is going to blow And time as we know it will come to an end And it will no longer be time for us to work Now I want you to take a look at the title Willing to work while waiting for Christ's return But here's something in our next slide I want you to look at for just a moment Here's a statement I want you to look at it's, I want you to sort of gnaw on it a little bit Like a dog with a bone And sort of, sort of gnaw on it for a minute Just look at it Our working is not added to God's work or God's working. Our work is joining God's working as he works through us. Let me say that one more time. Our working is not added to God's working. Our work is joining God's working as he works through us. We are called to work. Now, we are not working for our salvation. I've been to too many funerals in Wichita where the, the one who is conducting the funeral, someone other than myself, and I've sat in many funerals in the last nine years, some by our pastors, and they're not one of our pastors. But I've sat through many other funerals by other denominations, and it's we pray they are in heaven. We hope they are there. We're not sure, and so we're, we're working their way into heaven for them. And, and I'm here that Christ came that we might know that we have eternal life. We can know that we know that we know that we have eternal life when we die, and that we're going to go to heaven. And the Bible says that salvation is by grace through faith in that it is not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God. So salvation is a freely given gift. It is a work that has already been done through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. All of the work is done. All I have to do is place my faith and trust in Him as my Savior. And that work alone, what He did on the cross and He did through the grave, then becomes my work. He worked for me on my behalf, and now I have been set free from condemnation of sin, and I have the promise of heaven. That's His working on my behalf. Now as His disciple, I join Him in His work. Let me sort of connect the dots for you here for just a minute. Long introduction. We're going to be quick, though, in the application, so when you go to the text. God is sovereign. God has not abdicated his throne. And and God is, is working out his sovereign will throughout history. And as he is working his sovereign will throughout history, he is working to redeem a lost humanity unto himself. That's what he did in Jesus. In sending Christ, he is working through history to redeem a lost humanity unto himself, through Christ to save those who are lost. And when Christ left, God didn't abdicate or leave the earth unattended. It was his choosing now when Christ left, and that's why he came, to call disciples to now entrust with a gospel redemptive mission of doing exactly what Christ came to do. We, like Jesus, have been called to work. We have been called to join God in the redemption of a lost world. We are not to sit passively, idly, Buy and do absolutely nothing If you're a disciple of Jesus You're not a consumer You're a servant And God has entrusted everything to your care For the sole purpose of joining God In the redemptive work that he wants to do through you To bring lost sinners unto himself As long as you have life and breath That's what you are to be about If you're his disciple Our working is not added to God's working He did it all Our working is joining God working as he works through us. Let's take a look at how Jesus lived his life. This is still the introduction. John 5, 17. Jesus answered them. There were some critics. Even then, you know, if you have critics, you're in good company because Jesus had critics. And they came to him, and they were critiquing what he was doing. And he answers them, and he said, My father is working until now, and I am working. My father is working He's been working before now, and he is presently working. And because the Father worked before then he's working now, I too, Jesus, am joining God's activity, and I am working with God. Jesus joined the activity of God. He just didn't initiate work on his own. He joined God at work. John 5, 5 19, then he says, Jesus then says to them, he has this, Truly, truly, whenever Jesus says it twice, you better pay attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. Anything you do independently, apart from Christ, that's not joining God in what God is doing, you're on your own. Because Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own accord. Jesus doesn't just step outside and do whatever he wants. He joins God in what God is doing, and that was what brought about the success of what he was doing. But only what he sees the Father doing. Jesus is walking about in his earthly ministry, seeing where God is at work, and as he sees God at work, he simply joins God in what God is doing. That's what he does. He doesn't initiate work independently apart from God, but he joins God in what God is doing. Notice he said, for whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Jesus is doing exactly what God is already doing. God is at work right now in your life and in the lives of everyone that you know right now in this city, in this state, in this country, and in our world. He has not abdicated the world. He has not got off his throne. He's still working in in history to redeem a lost humanity unto himself, and he chooses to use you and me as his disciples to accomplish that task. And as we Surrender that task Notice Colossians chapter 213 Said another way And I want to come back to this text one of these days by itself Because it is rich with incredible truth For it is God who is working in you Absorb that for a minute For it is God who is working in you Who's working in you? God God is working in you To do what? Enabling you to will and to act for his good purpose You know, when somebody says to me, you know, I don't really have a desire to work for God. You know what that says to me? You're not a disciple. You're not a believer. But we're going to see next week in the judgment seat, there's some people who made the choice not to join God in God's work. And he's going to say, I never knew you. Because A non-disciple, someone who doesn't know Christ, who hasn't been born by the Spirit, is not going to be willing to work because the Spirit, it says, the Spirit of God who resides in you is going to give you a desire, a will to do God's work. And when that desire wells up with you, as you work for him, you work for his good purpose. All that you have been entrusted by God, as we saw last week, has been entrusted to you to fulfill God's good purposes, not to exhaust or to use or to spend on yourselves. I mean, not against you know, a little bit of, you know, a little bit of good eating or, you know, a good pillow, but we are to use the things that God has entrusted to us for his good purposes. We are to work. God has called us to work. And only if we had a church filled with workers. Imagine what kind of church we would be. There are three components I want to look at in the passage that Andy read a while ago, Pastor Andy read. God's work is accomplished through three things. Through communication, through compassion, and through collaboration. Three things, three ingredients that bring about the activity of God. God's work Christ's work is accomplished first through communication Let's take a look at the text, verse 35 And Jesus went Don't, don't, don't jump over that Don't jump over anything today We're going to look at this section by section I have three points, but I have 16 sub-points to each point So buckle up Okay. No, don't get excited, he's only got three points I got plenty of subpoints to these points So I, I would like to preach a message on each one of these points But I haven't got time So Christ's work is accomplished through communication. It says, and Jesus went. Jesus now is purposefully moving about like a good shepherd seeking lost sheep in which to save. He is the good shepherd. He's counted the 99 in the pen and one is lost. And now he is moving about seeking whoever he might save. He's looking for lost people. He is purposefully, intentionally going out to see where God is at work and seeing where God is at work in lives so that as he sees God at work in individual lives, he can join God in that individual life and see that person saved. So he is purposefully moving. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. Notice he is pursuant of lost people where? Everywhere. He's non-selective. He is going everywhere. He is going into the small villages and he's going into the large cities. One of the biggest strategies that I have a little bit of problem with in the North American Mission Board is that they are only targeting large cities over a million population. Jesus primarily spent most of his ministry in Galilee. But Jesus targeted the large cities and the small villages. Because you see, there's nobody to Important and too body, nobody too unimportant for the gospel. Now, I believe we ought to target the mega cities, but we should not forget the larger places. There, there's no one that you know that is too important or too unimportant who doesn't need the gospel. And some churches want to target only the influential, only the wealthy. And then some churches only want to target the poor. We as a church should target anyone. And everyone, regardless of their social status or their economic stability or inability, or whatever, who they are or what they are or what they have or what they don't have, it is everyone he is pursuing. Notice what he does is he gets into a village and he preaches the word. Notice he went into the village teaching in their synagogue. If you know anything about uh, when we studied the book of Acts uh, verse by verse here a couple of semesters ago, we, we learned that Paul did exactly that. First he went into the city, he went straight to the synagogue. That's what Jesus did. Paul was emulating Jesus. He goes straight to the churches. You know, I think Jesus needs to target many churches today. And he would be somewhat of an unwelcome Stranger probably in some of these churches And he opened the Bible Because he honored the word of God And he read from the Old Testament prophecies And as he read And he folded the book He then said I am the fulfillment of that prophecy Every word that is written here In the Old and the New Testament Points to Jesus And he pointed through the scriptures To himself And notice when he did that Not only he preach the word But he proclaimed the good news And proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom He proclaimed the good news. He said, here I am. I am the Messiah. He opened the scriptures, and he proclaimed then the good news. Why good news? Because the Savior is here. God has met your greatest need, and that greatest need is to be saved from your sin against God. And the Savior, the Messiah, the promised one, the Son of God, has arrived, and hope is here. He proclaimed the good news. What we communicate has got to be nothing more and nothing less than the simplicity of the good news. The good news. But notice he also projected an authentic lifestyle, an authentic witness. It says in the text, and healing every disease and every affliction. It's wonderful that Jesus cared about the physical needs of people, and so should we. But the purpose and the reason why God did this through Jesus wasn't simply because He cares about our physical concerns and our physical needs, but he cares about the spiritual needs, and he was doing this in order to say to them, see, I am who I claim to be. I am fulfilling the prophecies, for the prophecies said that the Messiah would come and healings would take place to authenticate the one that God had sent. And Jesus was doing these miraculous things to authenticate the reality of his claims. I am the Messiah. I am the Jesus that you are awaiting for. And so he's saying to them, I'm an authentic witness that came from God, and I claim to be who I claim to be. You know, the sad reality is that probably one of the main reasons why many of us today are not witnessing is because our practice doesn't meet our proclamation. Our lifestyle doesn't reflect what our lips proclaim. And hypocrisy is possibly the greatest accusation against the church today, and that should not be true. And I'm not saying we can be perfect. I am not perfect. Does that surprise you? I'm very close, but I'm not quite perfect. No one's perfect. You're not perfect. And it's unfair for a, an imperfect world to demand perfection from us until they listen to our, to, our, to, our, to our proclamation of the gospel. But it's in our imperfection we must help them understand that for by grace through faith, we would not be saved. Because if we project this this authentic witness that we're perfect and they know we're not, then how can we share the good news of Jesus with them? So try to be as close to looking like Jesus and living like Jesus and walking like Jesus and reflecting the, the image of Jesus as you can so that when you present and communicate the good news of Christ, it's an authentic witness to a lost world. Number two, Christ's work is accomplished through compassion. Notice what the text says in verse 36. Now, first of all, let's define compassion. You look it up in the Webster's Dictionary and it says this. Compassion is sympathetic consciousness of others' distresses together with a desire desire to alleviate those distresses. To feel compassion for someone. You recognize their distress, you feel for them, and you seek to alleviate them from that which is distressing to them. That's compassion. In other words, compassion is not just something we feel, but it's something that motivates what we do. Okay? You got it? So, compassion. Let's look at Jesus' example in verse 36. When he saw, when he saw Jesus saw Notice Christ's compassion Displayed in his Concentration Jesus didn't walk around with his eyes closed He was Concentrating on seeing the people Around him He saw them He had his eyes wide open And he was assessing where God was at work And seeing where God was at work in lives I think one of the main reasons why we lack compassion Is we choose to walk around like this We're not We're not looking. We don't see the people around us. We don't know the person that that waits on us when we go to Quick Trip that's behind the counter. We don't even know their name. We don't see them. Sometimes we don't even see the person in the cubicle next to us. Not really. We walk around, God, I don't want to see. And I think the reason we do that is because when we see them, and then we're going to have to do one of two things, we're going to have to either ignore what we saw. and That would be hard, wouldn't it, because we're going to be convicted Or we'd have to do something about it. Or we'd have to live with that conviction. And he saw, he concentrated on them. Notice, he saw the crowds. His concern was about the people. He didn't see just the crowd, he saw the individual people who came. And if you look at the ministry of Jesus, he talks to people very personally and very intimately, even though they're part of the crowd. He knows them. He knows what they're going through. And I think he sees them personally. He knows them intimately. And we must get to know people. We must be concerned about, as we see them, them as a person and what their needs are. He saw people. But notice, he had compassion on them as he sees them as he looks at the individual and sees their heart and knows their who they are he develops a compassion and this compassion is a genuine compassion most of us i think in here i'm going to be safe to say most of us in here would say you know i I feel for lost people i have a compassion for lost people i I want them to be saved but is it a genuine compassion that jesus has The word for compassion here is a gut-wrenching compassion that literally moves his spirit and moves in his bowels. He is moved. He is touched. He is physically transformed because of what he sees. And that compassion is just something that overwhelms him. You know, when you develop that kind of compassion, you're not going to be able to contain it. Where is the compassion that we need for a lost world and a lost humanity? I'm convinced that one of the biggest problems we have motivating people today to go out and work in the field that, that is ripe and to harvest is because of a lack of that kind of compassion. A compassion not only feels, but wants to alleviate the distress. And Jesus felt compassion for them. And his, notice his commitment compassion for them that that for them don't overlook that that compassion was a commitment to meet their need where they are it was for them i think a lot of times we have compassion maybe for myself and i have compassion for my spouse and i may be compassionate about my children or my grandchildren but jesus had compassion that reached beyond for him for himself he wanted compassion for them and then notice Why? Because they're harassed, and they're helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus has a comprehension, an understanding of their condition. The reason why he has compassion is, if you notice, they are harassed. They are people who are harassed. That says to me that there is an opposition, there is a force, there's an enemy that is harassing them. And that enemy is not only Satan, but it's the sin that they can't overcome. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and, and the price of that sin, according to Romans six twenty three, is what? Death. They are harassed. They are, they are harassed by sin and by Satan and by self. And because they are harassed, notice he says, and as he sees them, he notices they are helpless. They can do nothing about their condition. They can't pick themselves up by their own bootstraps. You want to do that again? We did that here a couple of Sundays ago. Picking some, you know we ask a young man to pick himself up by his own bootstraps You can't You can pick up one leg but you can't pick both up You can't help yourself You need somebody outside of yourself to do for you what you cannot do And he, he says they are helpless And he says notice that they are hopeless Why are they hopeless? Because they don't have a shepherd There's nobody there to lead them into the light, into the truth with the gospel message that frees them and that liberates them from their harassment and their helplessness. They have no hope. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of their day were leaving them without a shepherd to lead them into the truths of God. There was no one there that was heralding or proclaiming the good news that the Messiah was there other than him. Jesus, in a little bit, is going to send out his disciples to do exactly what he is doing in Proclaiming the good news To multiply the message of the gospel More than just himself personally To get it out as quickly as possible They don't have a a shepherd And so they are helpless And Jesus has compassion for them I wonder, what is the extent Of your compassion for lost people? I don't doubt that you care I don't doubt your concern, but are you compassionate to the point that it drives you with every breath that you have, every ounce of energy that you possess, everything that God has entrusted to you to make sure that you invest it so that lost lives can come to faith in Jesus? Oh, if he would only give us that kind of compassion at Emmanuel Baptist Church. We'd take the covers off those seats back there. And we wouldn't be able to have enough room to contain the people in this place. Number three, collaboration. Christ's work is accomplished through collaboration. Notice verse 37. Then he said, teamwork starts with us collaborating and joining the activity and the effort of God. And and it's, it's important that we hear what he says. It's important that after we hear it, that we receive it. And Jesus is speaking into the lives of his disciples. And if they didn't receive it, they wouldn't respond to it. And I think many reasons why we are not responding to the words of Jesus is because we're not, just, we're not receptive of them. He, we must receive them because in receiving them, he spoke to them and they received the word of Jesus to his disciples. Whose disciples are they? They're his. They don't belong to themselves, they belong to him. They are his disciples and he's speaking into the lives of his disciples and after they receive it, they're reminded that they belong to him. He has every right to speak into their lives, to dictate and determine the activity of their lives, the purpose of their lives and the direction of their lives and what they are to do with what he's entrusted to them. It's not up to them to decide what to do with what they have. It is for them to come to him and say, Speak into my life. I receive it because I know you are the Lord of my life. I am your disciple and I have been called to follow you. And so notice, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That's, that's the first thing that comes out of his mouth. He turns to his disciples and he says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He's wanting his disciples, as he communicates to them, I want you to recognize the need that is there. Jesus is perceptive of it, but he's not quite sure his disciples are. And he wants to make sure that they see what he sees. He understands that they understand what he understands. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Take a look at the need, the harvest. What does the word harvest mean? Brother Denny, are you here? What does harvest mean, Brother Denny? Reap what you sow. That means that the fields are ripe unto harvest. Jesus is saying here that they are prime for the picking. The seed has already been sown, it's been watered, God has grown it, God's been at work. And while he's been at work, it has grown, and now it is ripe for the picking. The harvest is out there, and it's ripe for the picking. That's the harvest. Not only is it ripe for the picking, but it's plentiful. There is more out there than you could possibly ever collect. That's why we're not in competition with any other church. The harvest is so plentiful out there that God could fill every church in this city multiple times over if God were to send us out as laborers into his field. A harvest is plentiful, but notice the laborers are few. What's the need? God needs people to go out into the harvest. It's like having a crop and nobody to harvest it. Would that be foolish? It would be dumber than dirt. That means your elevator doesn't go out of the top, you're a couple of French fries short of a happy meal, whatever you want to say. You've gone to the to the to the effort of planting the seed and Doing everything that you can to make sure that it grows and a harvest and it's ripe and it's ready and it's plentiful and it's out there. And all of a sudden, you just kind of sit back and go, Isn't that great? That'd be dumb, wouldn't it? I was with Glenn. <laughs> I told you I was going to fit this in here somewhere. I was uh, at Abco uh, with him. Uh, he and I were working together on the experience of God together. And, and Glenn and I, uh, he took me to his plant up there. I've never, man, that is awesome up there. If you don't have an Abco machine, you should buy one. Brother Denny, do you have one? You need to go take a look at what he's got. And I sat in one of those combines. Man, that thing is awesome. You can't afford it? Well, you know what? He's got three or four-year-old things that you could probably afford. Bro, well, we talked about that. They're only like three hundred fifty grand. I mean, and I sat in one of them. Man, those things, they're awesome. And they got a TV, and I'm not sure, all kinds of stuff in there. And... Uh, Why do they do that? So they can collect as much harvest as fast as possible. Why would we want to do that? Because the harvest is ripe and it's ready and there's plenty of And he wants to send us out into the the harvest field. If God could use a combine, he would. But God in his sovereignty, I don't understand it. He chose to use you and me. He he selected us to go out and to to be a part of the harvesting. We are his harvesters. There are people right now that are that are ripe for the picking and are waiting for you to introduce them to Jesus, and they're waiting. It's insanity. And they wait. And they wait. And they wait. But notice we need to rely on the Lord of the harvest. Because he reminds them and he reminds us. Therefore, well, I'm sorry, we need to request. I skipped an important part. Once we recognize the need, we need to request laborers. He says, therefore, pray. Not just pray, but pray earnestly. To pray earnestly. That means to plead, to beg, to cry out to God from a heart filled with compassion. Lord, send out laborers into your field. And we need to pray for laborers to be sent out into the field. Our praying a lot of times is about our ingrown toenails. And it should be primarily to pray that God would send laborers out into the fields. How much of our praying is praying for the physical or for the personal, instead of praying for God to send laborers in the fields that are ripe unto the picking and, and God send the labor? He's saying, "Guys, before you go, you need to pray, And praying is, 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 is life. To the witness, to the evangelistic effort If we don't pray before we go, it's useless And prayer is what, he, I mean you would think You know, you would think at this point The, the harvest is plentiful, it's ripe for the pitting Go, just go No, he says pray You need to pray Are you a prayer warrior? Praying for the Lord of the harvest To send laborers into the field that is ripe to picky. And as we pray, guess what? Notice it says, to send out laborers into the harvest. Why? Because he's the Lord of the harvest. As we go and as we pray, we rely upon the Lord. Why? He's the Lord of the harvest. Read anything about Acts, the incredible movement of the Spirit of God in the book of Acts, God added to the church daily. It is God who adds to the church, not me, not you. Not us. Never say, I led somebody to Jesus today. That's wrong. (laughs) You didn't lead anybody to Jesus. God led someone to Jesus through your witness. You can't save anybody, only he can. You can be his witness, but he is the Lord of the harvest. And if he has made the harvest ready and he's the Lord of the harvest, that takes all the pressure off me and you. Doesn't it? I mean, if he adds, it's not up to me. I'm just being obedient. I may not know where the fish are biting in the lake, but I'm throwing out in my line as many places as I can, hoping to find where the, the fish are biting, right? And when you find one of those sweet holes where the fish are biting, what do you do? You keep fishing there until the fish don't bite anymore, and you go back to that place, what do you, you know, that, that pond. Where do you, you go back to that sweet honey spot, Right? Because you know they bit there last time. And you try to use the same lure you used last time. And if they're not biting there, you're going to go find another place. And so we need to be really, really careful and understand that he's the Lord of the harvest. And we keep throwing our gospel line out there. And it is is he that gives them the appetite and the will to take it. And it is he, as we reel them in, saves them. But notice, into his harvest. I think it's interesting he ends with, pray for the labors into the harvest. You see, some of us, as we pray or should I say all of us as his disciples, should hear as we pray, Lord, send laborers into the field, he's going to say,
1: I want you to go.
0: That's the dangerous thing, isn't it? Lord, send laborers into the harvest. I want you to go. What was that, Lord? I'm calling you to go into my harvest. Jesus is calling his disciples into the harvest As we pray He's sending us as we go A collaborative effort Us working with him He's at work right now in people you know in your life Everywhere you go At the quick trip At the office The plant Wherever it is He's at work in their lives Guarantee it You may not know where he's at work But as you go around your day He's going to show you where he's at work and he's going to give you an opportunity and when he opens the door and he invites you to step through that door you better step up to the plate and be his witness. Because when you do you join God in a collaborative effort and man, when that happens people trust Jesus and I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to pray with someone who's had a life transforming regenerational work of the Holy Spirit where they pray to receive Christ and man, it's like Christmas. (laughs) It's like Christmas. And their whole lives change. Their whole countenance change. They're just completely new creations in Christ. Completely transformed what we sang about a while ago, and they'll never be the same. You had that encounter. So need, they need that encounter. As we close, am I willing to work while waiting for Christ's return? That's the question. Am I willing to work? Am I willing to pray? Am I willing to go? Am I willing to become the disciple that God would use into the harvest that He's already prepared to be a laborer to see Him bring the harvest? The harvest is already out there, people. It's ready. Will we go? interesting story as i close about a mother who was sitting standing actually she was standing in her kitchen making supper and uh, as she was making supper uh her 8 year old 7 8 year old son was out it's a true story he was out in the on the driveway and was riding his bicycle they just taken the training wheels off he was riding his bicycle and she could see him from the window in her kitchen he could see the driveway and long as he was staying on the driveway he was taught not to go in the street everything was good and as mothers do you know she was concerned about the safety of her son because they lived on a busy street and so she would constantly look at the window about every 30 seconds to make sure that her son was safe and every time she did sure enough he was well she got distracted and it was a few minutes before she looked and about the time she decided to look she heard a, a squeech and a bam Instantly she thought, oh my soul, my son has been hit by a car. She dropped what she was doing and she ran outside, didn't see him in the driveway, looked down the street and saw a car that had been stopped and people started to gather around. And as she ran toward that, thinking the worst that she could possibly think, couldn't get through the crowd, and so she just knocked everybody back. And as she got finally there, she saw what looked like a boy. And as she got closer to examine, she noticed That it wasn't her son. And this is what she said. Everyone else heard her. Thank you Jesus. It's not my son. Where is our compassion and where is our concern for others? Not just our own family. Where is it? If we are to be disciples, we are to be involved in the work. The work of redeeming a lost humanity unto Christ. The harvest is plentiful. It's ripe and it's ready. In Wichita, in Kansas, in the United States, and in the world. And he needs laborers to go. I've talked to some here, and there's, there's some who are sensing God calling them into a labor force maybe in a foreign country or calling them to ministry. Is God calling you to ministry? And God may be raising up some new ministers here in our church to go out and to commit their lives as young adults to prepare for ministry and to be a labor force for the Lord. But I know he's calling all of us as his disciples to be missionaries. We're not only disciples, but we're missionaries. In my prayer this week, as you leave this place, we leave knowing that we're in a field that is ripe to harvest and that God would give us an awareness of his activity. And as he works, he lets us see where he's at work and he invites us to join him. And as we do, wow. He wants to use you. Will you let him? Let's pray.